Welcome, everyone. This is the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director of BCLT. And once again, we have Michael Smith with us, a world-famous lawyer and legal blogger, and probably the most knowledgeable person about Texas civil procedure and patent cases. Um, with all of that introduction, Michael, we're going to turn to media first and ask about uh, what looked like an attack piece from the Wall Street Journal last week, uh, presumably talking about judges and their duty to recuse themselves, but really going after Judge Gilstrap in an unfair way. Uh, what did you make of that piece? Uh, Wayne, your take on it was the same as mine. Um, the The journal initially had an article talking about how over a hundred judges had not recused in cases where the journal thought that they should have because the judge or the judge's spouse or a member of their family had a uh, stock in a, in, in a company that was in the case. Um, it pointed out that in most cases, the judges thought that they didn't need to recuse, uh, either because it was in a trust or it was blindly or privately managed. And, and the journal says that's not the case. I don't know if that's true or not. But what we saw come out the next day was, I thought, a, a, a pretty clear attack piece on Judge Gilstrap. But what was funny, <laughs> what was really funny about it to those of us who handle IP cases out there is that they, they, uh, they, their data analysis showed that Judge Gilstrap's rulings have actually favored defendants more often than in patent suits nationwide when you get down to trial. It showed that defendants won more often than they lost at trial, but nationally defendants lose uh, 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 almost 60% of the time, which is not news. We all knew this, but it was funny seeing the Wall Street Journal uh, explain how uh, defendants do better in his court, but they were still trying to claim that there was something uh, improper about about his cases. So uh, it got a lot of uh, attention locally in Texas, uh, but it's just hasn't been our experience. Nobody Nobody that I know of, and this includes the reporters that wrote the case, that wrote the article, I don't think any of them think he ever did anything um, improper as a result of the ownership. They were simply looking for an excuse to say something bad about him. And and uh, it's unfortunate that they did that because this is an important issue. This is an issue where the courts and possibly Congress should look at making sure that this is um, handled a, a, a little more uh, transparently. But they undermine their analysis by taking shots at a judge where nobody thinks that is influencing his opinions. Um, but but again, I had someone ask me the other day, well, where do you go from here? Is Judge Gilstrap going to recuse? Is he not going to recuse? What happens if he does? I don't know. I had a scheduling conference with him last week in a case where I now know he holds stock in the company that's on the other side of me. I have no intention of asking him for, to recuse because I am very happy to have him here in my case. Uh, if he chooses to recuse or if he decides that he is required to accuse, recuse, what happens to those cases? Well, most courts have rules dealing with that. And the rule in the Eastern District is the cases then go to the other judge, judge or judges that are assigned to that division. In this case, that means they'd go to Judge Trey Schrader in Texarkana. But and I'm proud to say this about about our judges, you get the same outcomes and the same result and the same analysis and the same quality of analysis from Judge Schrader that you get from Judge Gilstrap. I've tried cases to a verdict with both of them. 
I don't have any doubt that you're going to have the same treatment. So there's not really a reason for a party to prefer one court um, uh, to another court. Judge Schrader is the, the judge who had the Apple cases, the Vernetics cases. He had a, a verdict in his case against Walmart for $1.2 million in a slip and fall case this spring. So the verdicts aren't different. The judges aren't different. So this is something that's not going to affect the, the fair administration of justice in Judge Gilstrap's court. It may affect how efficient things are because some cases may have to be moved, but it's not something where, where I have to go to a client and say, well, we may have a less than fair outcome because of what has happened. That's just not the case here. Well, and the first piece of the Wall Street Journal article, like you said, is important. Transparency matters. I mean, I've been subjected to these uh, disclosure rules as part of the executive branch. And you, you go through the same set of disclosures. They're tough. They're difficult. Uh, they read like a stereo manual from the late 70s. Um, you know, it's hard to figure out what exactly you're supposed to do. And, you know, maybe the, the real takeaway for the Wall Street Journal is that there needs to be some resources to help judges that are, that are trying to fill these out honestly, but having to make judgment calls, uh, but not, I didn't see any need to go that next step and just imply that people were being dishonest just because they were having difficulty with some pretty difficult forms. Well, and, and I think, uh, Scott Graham, a, a reporter we both know did some, uh, analysis of this recently where he was talking about the federal circuit in this context. And can you hold, uh, index funds? Uh, at, at what point do you draw the line? At what point can a judge uh, not have any type of investments? And again, it's important to remember here from what the article said, it appears that these aren't stocks that Judge Gilstrap, uh, or his family hold individually. They're stocks in a trust that's set up uh, for his wife's benefit by her family. Well, we're from Marshall. Uh, I, I, every relative I've ever had in Marshall has been buried out of the funeral home that the Sullivans run. I, I know that family. I know the structure. I can understand why there would be some confusion over whether that counts or not, because it's not something that the judge has control over. Um, but 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 again, I do think it's a missed opportunity because when you go to, to Congress or go to the AO and say, here's an issue, we need some some help for parties and for judges on handling this, the response you're going to get is you turn this into a hatchet job against a judge where you didn't have any sort of good faith belief that he was doing anything improper. You skipped over the, the dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of rulings involving companies in which you said he had stock to pick out one in which he didn't set aside a jury verdict for a party where the other side was someone that his wife's trust had stock in. That's the best you could come up with. That was not, I think they did a disservice to their readers. That is not the story. That is not the facts. That's not what you need to know about the issue. And I, I was disappointed in um, in the journal's analysis there because, again, it is an important issue. The media's job is important, and they need to not get sidetracked into cheap shots like this. The job that they do is important, and they have to they have to keep it at a higher level than this. Well, Michael, moving on to some of the rulings, uh, we got an unusual personal jurisdiction ruling that actually provides a, a really nice uh, overview of personal jurisdiction in IP cases. This one in trademark, uh, interestingly enough. 
Well, it, it was. And when I first started skimming it, I was pulling my hair out because I couldn't believe this was the outcome that the court came to. But it was because I had skipped over at the beginning when the court pointed out this isn't an ordinary case. It was an appeal of a uh, trademark decision denying trademark protection. And the court denied, uh, stayed the case, did discovery into jurisdictional and venue issues. And then Judge Jordan said he didn't have personal jurisdiction. And you're right. It's a great analysis of the current state of personal jurisdiction law, which has changed since we all went to law school. And he said there's not general jurisdiction. There's not specific jurisdiction. And I'm looking at, wait a minute, this is a case over ties on garbage bags and the, the defendant is making them in Texas. How can there not be specific jurisdiction? And the judge said, because in these types of proceedings, what the courts look at is the actual proceedings relating to the trademark, not the defendant's general contacts with the forum. So we're not talking about stream of commerce here. We're talking just about the TTAB decision and, oh, okay, well, now I get it. Now I understand why you're narrowing yourself down from the contacts that we would normally expect courts to look at. Look at. Uh, there's also a useful comment at the end. Um, the uh, uh, defendant said, well, by the way, Judge, since we're if we win on this motion to dismiss, uh, we want our fees paid for having to bring it. And he said, okay, let me equate you with what he calls the bedrock principle of the American rule when it comes to fees. Here's who pays fees and here's who doesn't pay fees, and you don't get your fees for the, this kind of motion. So I think that's important as well because it gives you some insight into whether you should bring a fee motion when you bring a motion to dismiss that you think has got merit, which which the judge eventually agreed it did. So it was a little bit different flavors. This wasn't vanilla. It was more of a Sunday with a different topping and uh, different kinds of nuts. Well, Michael, you, you pointed out something to me earlier that I had missed in this opinion and that was the final ruling wasn't to, to dismiss the action, but the, the court very fairly uh, transferred it. And if he would have dismissed it, if Judge Jordan would have dismissed the the uh, the case, there would have been a statutory time bar on it. So a very humane result to let the case go forward on the merits, uh, but just in the proper place. Yes. And, and it's important that the plaintiff brought that up and said, judge, if you dismiss it, we have a 60 day window to appeal this. When we file in New York, we'll be time barred. So please transfer us. Sometimes you run into a similar issue like that in more routine improper venue arguments where you may want to ask the court, be sure that you transfer, please, your honor, because there's a reason why the case ought to be transferred instead of dismissed. But it's a good thing the plaintiff thought of this because it would have been a case dispositive ruling instead of simply a personal jurisdiction ruling if he had dismissed it instead of transferring it. Definitely, definitely good lawyering there to to raise that issue. Well, the the next one uh, that you brought up about issue preclusion and claim construction timing, this is a fantastic case for everybody to pay attention to because it comes up over and over again, when people are maybe a little bit unsure on the eve of trial about the the strength of their case, um, or maybe looking for a, a little bit of extra extra fuel going into the jury. So, what where did Judge Gilstrap come down on this eve of trial request? 
I agree. This was a great opinion because what happened here was the defendant came in on the eve of trial and said, oh, wait a minute, judge. We just saw that there was a claim construction out of the Northern District of Texas. So we want the plaintiff precluded from disagreeing with that uh, construction. And uh, we want the court to redo the, the construction on the eve of trial so that you say plain and ordinary meaning doesn't mean this. And Judge Gilstrap said, went through the analysis on an issue preclusion and said, actually, it wasn't fully and fairly litigated there. So issue preclusion doesn't apply. And then he went into a thorough analysis of O2 micro. Well, every case we're bringing up O2 micro claiming, Judge, we really still need you to make an additional construction. And although judges hate it when you bring up constructions on the eve of trial, they understand that sometimes it might become clear in experts' reports that there really is still a dispute over claim scope. Judge Gilstrap said there is not a fundamental dispute with regard to claim scope here. And also, he talked about um, how not to raise an O2 micro issue. He pointed out that the defendant had previously agreed to the construction and waited until the eve of trial to raise the issue. And then he talks about how he believes that O2 micro is not a license for a litigant to disrupt trial by raising a new claim construction issue just a few days before trial is set to begin, which is what happened here. Um, he says, you've got to raise it earlier. You have to, there are circumstances under which a court can say, no, this is too late. I'm not going to consider it at this point. Um, that's very helpful to me because those issues come up all the time and I'm never really sure to what extent I can tell a judge, look, I'm really sorry this didn't come up till now, but it is an issue of law and you have to look at it whether you like it or not. Judge Gilstrap is pointing out some circumstances in which perhaps uh, the trial court doesn't. So I think it's a very, very helpful opinion uh, for practitioners. Well, I think it's interesting when you find a, a judge like Gilstrap who's seen this same issue arise so many times. Uh, the, the court does have a good feel for something that arose naturally and honestly and something that's maybe more akin to sharp elbows. Well, and what he says here is, uh, here are the two key facts that may distinguish this case. He says, you agreed that this didn't need construction. And you don't cite anything to me that O2 micro applies to alleged claim construction issues raised for the first time days before trial. So he's creating a pretty clear area of exceptions to O2 micro. It'll be interesting to see whether, whether the federal circuit agrees or disagrees with that. Uh, it, it's sort of like when, um, TC Heartland came out and you had all these, these cases where you wanted to reopen the venue ruling close to trial. And some courts did that and some courts didn't do that. And the federal circuit supported some of the courts that wouldn't open it on the eve of trial. So to me, this is sort of like that. At what point is, is the court going to say, okay, I understand that this is what the law is, but there's a point at which we simply have to go with the law of the case on this. And this may be, uh, this is, I certainly know I can't go past that line in this court now, and I'll be using that case to argue to other judges, look, here's a, here's a point beyond which it's pretty clearly sharp elbows and you shouldn't consider it. Well, speaking of, of sharp elbows, it takes us to the Southern District of Texas and uh, a motion for attorney's fees that I really, really read as uh, the winning party having a real lack of self-awareness. Um, this is kind of one of those those cases that came across to me is 
uh, everybody else is bad except me. And yeah, the judge it, called it out. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's the kind of uh, thing that we see occasionally where a party will win a case, and then they come in and say, "Look, we went, we won. Here's all the bad things the other side did. We won our fees." And Judge Bennett in that case went through and he said, "Okay, first of all, looking at the plaintiff's claims, it, there's no showing that that what they did was unreasonable uh, in terms of the." Um, the substantive arguments they made, they lost, but the arguments weren't unreasonable. Now, turning to uh, the, the, your arguments about their litigation strategy, no question they had to, an aggressive litigation strategy, but he points out your strategic decisions as a defendant, your, your, your IPRs, your decisions in the case had a significant impact on the trajectory of the case. It was a very expensive case, but you bear the, um, uh, responsibility for a lot, lot of that. And he points out, this is an industry competitor's case. These are going to be hard fought cases, but that alone is not enough. The competitor doesn't get fees simply because it was a hard fought case and they won. This is the kind of case we've seen before from Judge Yackel, from Judge Albright, from Judge Gilstrap. Judges that are familiar with patent cases know how hard fought they are. They know that there's st- strategic decisions on both sides. Uh, and that you're not supposed to win fees just because you won the case. I've seen cases from Judge Gilstrap a couple of years ago where he had some very harsh words for the losing party's strategy and for their decisions and for things that they did that they shouldn't have done. But he then said, but that's still not enough to make this an exceptional case. You can't go back and, and pick out the bad things somebody did. The case has to be exceptional as a whole, looking at the totality of the circumstances, and Judge Bennett here said that uh, the defendant had not shown that. Well, not not surprising as we move to the Western District of Texas, uh, venue once again dominates some of the the key decisions coming out. Yeah, uh, we had three more venue mandamus opinions coming out of Judge Albright's uh, court from the Federal Circuit on Monday. It was from the same panel that had the Juniper case. On Friday, um, like the Juniper case, they don't break much new ground. They may have been addressed to older orders that were doing things that, that they've already said you can't, uh, follow this in analysis. So I don't know how much we get out of that. The thing that I took out of it was in, uh, well, and let me back up. There were three opinions. In two of the opinions, they denied mandamus and only one did they grant mandamus. Let me talk about the one where they did. It was another, uh, Google case. I think it's uh, NRA Google 34. Um, they talk about the Fifth Circuit's 100-mile rule. And le- let me explain that uh, quickly. What the, what the Fifth Circuit said in the first Volkswagen case is that when the distance to be traveled between courthouses is more than 100 miles, the inconvenience uh, increases in direct proportion to the additional miles to be traveled. That rule is not really, I mean, I have to call a spade a spade. The federal circuit just doesn't follow that rule. In this case, Waco was over a thousand miles closer to the witnesses that were on the East Coast than California was, but they disregarded that. And their reason was, well, there's not an airport in Waco, in the Waco division that has direct flights to the East, East Coast. So you would have to uh, travel over a hundred miles to get to an airport that can take you to the East Coast. So the actual time to travel would be quicker to get to California 
And, and I'm, and I'm sorry, I just can't follow the rationale there because I fly through Dallas pretty frequently. And if I have a witness that's coming from New York and they need to get to Waco, they fly to Dallas, they get in a car and an hour and a half, two hours later, they're in Waco. If they need to get to California, they fly to Dallas, they sit in an airport for two or three hours, and then they get on a plane for a few more hours and they go to California. So even accepting that we should ignore the Fifth Circuit's case law and talk about time to travel, this doesn't make any sense. But but it's important to realize that uh, as a defendant, when you're arguing this, that that 100-mile rule, don't view that case law as a limit because the Federal Circuit is not going to follow it if it doesn't support transfer. We've seen cases like this where the 100-mile rule would clearly favor trial in the Western District of Texas and the court's not not following it. So that so what you need to look at is find an argument that you can make. Well, it's it's actually you can't get there directly. I'm not even saying it has to make sense. I'm just saying give them an excuse and they'll downgrade that factor to where even though you're a thousand miles closer, the court will be instructed to disregard that fact. Michael, as I, as I work through this, and, and maybe I'm a little sensitive to this issue, um, you know, I, I grew up in Amarillo, which does have the airport, but uh, connects to nowhere except Dallas and Albuquerque. Um, it seems that the federal circuit's just really taking a shot at every rural court, federal court in America, that if you're not near a, a big airport, it's inconvenient to do, to do yeah, litigation the, the, there. The definition that you have to have direct, um, direct flights within your division to the East coast or the West coast, or you can't have patent cases is kind of a, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to call it elitist, but, but I agree with you. I mean, I, I kind of think Congress was wise in putting federal courts all over the country. And the fact that um, some of them, you have to take a connecting flight to, or you have to get into a car for a little while, uh, it, it is not a factor. The Fifth Circuit didn't say it was a factor. It's just something we're getting now from the Federal Circuit. They're, they're, they've created a way now that as a defendant, I can disregard the fact that a court in Texas is far more convenient geographically under the, uh, under the Fifth Circuit's, uh, cases here. Um, well, Michael, let me I shift. Think, oh, go Michael, ahead. I think that's important. You pointed out the Fifth Circuit never said this. And of course, the Fifth Circuit draws from a, a lot of more rural areas um, throughout the, the Texas, Louisiana region. So um, there, there's something to be said for the circuit courts knowing they're, they're part of the country versus the federal circuit sitting in D.C. Well, and, and also the circuits know it, but also the, um, um, the people that live, the judges who live there know it. The Judge Gilstrap knows, Judge Albright knows, Judge Albright drives from Austin to Waco all the time, and that's at least an hour and a half. We all know how convenient it is or isn't to, to go, go to Tyler, get in the car and go to Tyler for a hearing. Uh, I think one of the trials I had with you, I actually, even though the trial was in Tyler, I spent the night in Marshall every night. We'd work until nine or 10, and then you would keep working all night and I would go back and go to bed. Um, I was, I was about to correct you. Uh, you worked till nine or 10. I worked for three or four. <laughs> oh, I, I remember. I remember. Um, the, the, there, there is an unwillingness to uh, recognize the expertise 
that the uh, uh, local courts have. We know that. But what we're seeing now is increasingly there's an unwillingness to follow the Fifth Circuit's case law on motions to transfer when it doesn't get to a certain outcome. And I, I think what illustrates this is the other two mandamuses from Monday. In the other two cases, the Federal Circuit denied mandamus and they, and they said, we, we don't dis, we don't agree with the, with Judge Albright's holding, but we're unwilling to disturb, uh, what he did. Well, I looked to see what are the common things between those two cases. In one case, it involved Samsung and Intel. And Samsung, of course, has got a giant facility in Austin, which my son happens to work at and enjoys very much. But they, and in the other case, it involved an oil and gas drilling company where the products were made in the Western District of Texas and sold or deployed to drilling sites in the Western District of Texas. So the common thread in those cases was they were saying, we're unwilling to set aside the district judges finding that there were going to be witnesses at those facilities in the Western District of Texas that were relevant to the claims in this case. Now, we know they say it can't be facilities that don't have a connection to the claims, but where the parties can point to, well, we've got all these witnesses at Samsung that have expertise and have relevant knowledge regarding the claims in this case, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to disregard that. So when I try to put that together with the other case, what I'm coming up with is I really don't think the federal circuit is applying uh, 1404 or even in Ray Volkswagen in motions to transfer anymore. The way I view it as the federal circuit has, has created its own test for motions to transfer in patent cases. It, it tells district judges don't apply various of the, of the Volkswagen factors. Don't apply time to travel analysis. Don't apply, uh, looking at which, which witnesses are more important. Don't look at the local, it ignores a lot of those factors. And what it focuses on is the defendant's connections to the district with respect to the claims in the case. That seems to be what they're looking for. That's not the statute. That's not clearly more convenient. That's not Volkswagen. But it seems to be the standard that we're looking at uh, in patent cases here. So I think we're all wise to recognize what's really going on. And when you're going to argue a motion to transfer, you need to focus on what the court seems to want to see before it will okay venue in a certain uh, forum. And if you're opposing one, you need to think before you file the case, how close am I to the line on this? And do I have the sorts of facts that um, that the federal circuit is looking for here? You can't just look at the statute and the case law coming out of the Fifth Circuit and be comfortable that that's going to be enough is what I'm taking away from this. Well, Michael, um, when the next, I guess, interesting venue case was about automobile dealerships, which, of course, affects a huge portion of uh, the tech industry and economy. Uh, where did Judge Gilstrap come down on this issue? Well, you're right. This is a very important issue. Uh, I saw this come up in a case in Marshall a few years ago. It's come up uh, in California and other cases. And in this case, Judge Albright agreed with the plaintiff that venue was proper as to the automobile, automobile dealership uh, uh, in his court. And he did it. We have some, some prior cases from Judge Gilstrap that hold that the dealership does count as a regular and established place of business uh, after T.C. Heartland. What he goes on, he concludes that the defendant exercises control over the dealerships, 
the relationship of the dealerships is conditioned on them being in the district and the defendant represents to the public that it has a place of business in the, in the district. What's new in this case is that he takes the, the, uh, uh, federal circuits analysis in NRA Google where, where they said you could also base venue on there being an agency relationship with whoever is in the district. And he says, in his, in his view, the authorized dealers are the defendant's agents and they do conduct its business, uh, in the venue. So that's, that's a very important, a very large chunk of economic activity that would be subject to patent infringement cases in Texas if this analysis is upheld. If it's not, then no vehicle dealership except ones whose headquarters are in, uh, uh, the, uh, the specific district would be subject to venue. Well, this the new analysis that Albright added over what Judge Gilstrap had done a few years ago um, on this this idea of agency. I mean, it's really going to be contract based uh, going forward, and it looks like that the court did a nice job of pointing to the contract. Oh, I think so, and and the contract is key. I had uh, the uh, opportunity early in my career to uh, uh, do some work representing uh, a auto dealership. And I know what those contracts say. And I know the kind of obligations they impose uh, on the, uh, the the franchisee that's going to be operating the facility. And that's that's definitely a place where I think courts need to look at to determine whether it is the defendant's place of business, whether the dealer is the defendant's agent. I, th- I think the contract is absolutely critical in that case. And I have seen plaintiffs not focus on the contract to the extent that they, I think that they should have. Well, Judge Albright also had a uh, terminal disclaimer case that came up under 12C, which uh, I think you pointed out the, the court even said was a matter of first impression, and I've I've never seen one in my career. Uh, what what happened here besides uh, Judge Albright using the wrong forms? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I hate, I, I hate to, I hate that I noticed that, but it was kind of funny at the end when the court was denying the motion to dismiss. Said the court denies the, uh, the, the motion to transfer. He had the correct docket number, but he, but apparently they were using a form denial of a motion to transfer as a starting point. And let, let those of us who have failed to catch something from a form throw the first stone. Um, it is interesting because this is one that you really have to be pretty deep in the weeds as a as a experienced patent lawyer, which I am not, uh, to recognize what the issue here is. But what the defendant was arguing was the court should dismiss the case because the patent was bound to a terminal disclaimer, which expired before the statutory damages began. And Judge Albright said, yeah, that's a case of first impression. It's a very interesting argument. Been in a lengthy and very detailed opinion, which I'm sure is going to be very enjoyable to, to patent lawyers. Um, even if it wasn't to me, uh, he didn't find that argument persuasive and he ordered that the, that the motion would be denied. But again, this is terrific analysis. It shows the quality of analysis that you can get. It was good lawyering thinking to bring it up. It was good lawyering figuring out how to respond to it. And it was very good lawyering by the judge in analyzing it and explaining there's not case law squarely saying which way I'm supposed to go. But looking at the cases that are closest, this is where I believe I'm supposed to be. And therefore, this is what I'm going to do. I recall one one uh, case I worked on when I was a law clerk 
28 years ago where my judge had a similar issue. There just wasn't an answer on this one particular point. So he had to look at the closest cases and figure out which way he should jump on it. So it's, it's a very interesting opinion and it shows you the quality of analysis that district judges who have this expertise can do. Well, and this one will be interesting to watch over the next three to six months to see if it, if it goes away, um, through, through other mechanisms besides 12C. Uh, the parties may have learned a lot from this briefing exercise. That that's true, and I have cases. I have had cases with Judge Albright where an argument was made early in the case. It didn't prevail. A similar argument was made later on the case, and based on the additional information that the court had in front of it, he ended up resolving the case using that issue. So it will be interesting to see if that if if there is a different result on that or whether the analysis that the court provided gave the defendant the the understanding that oh okay if we raise it this way maybe that's something we can do but it was also a good idea attacking the case based on damages i remember having a mediation one time with a magistrate judge in a uh, case and he didn't want to look at the uh, uh, liability facts at all he focused on the damages because he said I probably can't move you, either of you, on liability, but you know, if I can help you to tell that this is a tens of thousands of dollars of case instead of hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands instead of single or double digit millions, I've really done you some good. So it was, it, it, I appreciated that the defendant realized that damages might be a, a good way to attack uh, the viability of a case. Wonderful. Well, that takes us to our last case, Michael. And the last case is interesting if you're interested in attorney's fees, which a few of us might be. Uh, it's a Western District of case uh, by Judge Pittman, uh, and it's a non-competition and theft of trade secrets case involving former employees of a software development company. Um, they left the company, and the allegation was that they took a bunch of confidential information on laptops. The problem was what they did next was they deleted all the information from the laptops. And in a prior case, not the one that came out this past week, the court noted that this was not inadvertent deletion. This was very, um, you had to have a lot of technical expertise to delete this stuff. And unfortunately, not enough to conceal the deletions for their, for their cases. So he said, I am, the case is going to be, uh, uh, this foliation is going to result in you uh, losing the case and, uh, fees assessed against you. And the plaintiff asked for 314000 Now, what's interesting about this case is Judge Pittman goes through and does a terrific analysis of how you establish, um, how you do a lodestar analysis. How do you come up with the right rate? Uh, what do you need to look at in terms of the hours that were worked on the case? What proof do you need? When is something excessive when it's not? And he ends up coming up with, okay, I'm going to go with a blended rate of $603 an hour. And I'm going to trim the award from 314 to 290,000. But again, the value is in a judge showing how to make your proof on an offer for fees. When you get a chance like this, you, you need to, to be sure that you put everything in there to get the fees that uh, your client ought to get for it. Uh, and I just thought it was a very helpful opinion for practitioners on, on how to do that. It really, it really is a model on not only calculation, but also that the fee calculation is not an emotional, not an emotional request. This is just math and right. what's included. 
and um, obviously a, a really bad actor here. And the court still trimmed the fee down th- from 314 to 290. Uh, but it looks like uh, the, the prevailing party actually did a pretty good job in calculating it originally. It gets a little tricky at times. Right, right. There, and and one thing I know since I've I've joined a, a law firm that's a little larger than than I've been a, a member of in the past. There's there's a art to to what you put down and how you staff things and how you organize things and how you document things. And you can't simply work a case and then after the fact come in and try to reconstruct things uh, on the back end. Uh, that that will definitely damage your ability to recover fees. And in this case, clearly that that's not what the what the defendant did. They did a good job of proving up their entitlement uh, to fees and apparently a good job of staffing and working up the case. Well, Judge Pittman gave us a nice roadmap on on how to do that in the future. It seems like one to to, to put in the file and, and pull out anytime you're filing for for fees in Texas, at least. I, I certainly will be. So it also caught me the blended rate of six hundred and three an hour. That's um, that's a nice shot across the bow for those uh, trial lawyers that are charging fourteen hundred dollars an hour now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, those rates. Um, and, and again, Judge Pittman, you, you got to know the judge. He's been a magistrate. He's been a U.S. attorney. He's been a district judge. He's handling high profile cases. He knows the bar. He knows what people charge and he's able to, with a fi- lot of precision and a lot of expertise, nail down. This is appropriate. This is not. And that's, that's uh, expertise that we always like to see, uh, when we're, when we're in federal court. Well, Michael, once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for having me. Look forward to it. Next week is our Eastern District Bench Bar Conference, so uh, we're looking forward to seeing a a lot of y'all in Texas next week.